introduce myself. For those of you who I haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Ryan. I get to serve this incredible church family as the lead pastor. And if you're joining us for the first time, you're finding a smack dab in the middle of a sermon series that we're doing in the book of Malachi. Now, in case you're not familiar with Malachi, Malachi is a fascinating, fascinating book. I can go on for a long time, and I won't this morning because we've got a lot to get to, about why it is so fascinating. I think one of the reasons why is that it really bridges the gap for us between the Old and the New Testament. Right? So these words we're reading here, they're the final words that the people of God would hear from God before they go into this period of silence for over 400 years. So that should show you why these words are so important. But one of the other reasons why this book is so fascinating is because it gives us a dialogue between God and his people. And I'm not sure how familiar you are with your Bibles, but that doesn't happen a whole lot in our scriptures. And so what we really get to see in this dialogue is we get to see the nature of really the heart of God. We've been talking about that these last few weeks. But we also get to see a little bit about how we should, or in most cases, maybe in all cases in this book, how we shouldn't respond to who God is. And that's going to be no different than what we're going to see this morning, because we're going to hear yet another gripe from the Israelites. Yes, they are still complaining. We're going to hear another gripe from them, only this time... God's actually going to do something a little bit different, right? See, up until this point, every time the Israelites have brought a gripe against him, he's pointed them back to his past faithfulness. What we're going to see this morning is him, instead of pointing backwards, he's going to point forwards towards his perfect plan to redeem and to restore them. That's why this passage we're going to read today, I really think this is the turning point in the entire book of Malachi. Because up until this point, we know that God's frustrated, right? If you haven't gotten that point, God is frustrated, right? His heart is breaking over the actions of his people. But we've yet to really hear a whole lot of detail about God's plan to address all of that. Well, that way's going to come to an end as we look to Malachi chapter 3 this morning. Because after God lays waste to the complaints and to the criticisms and to the selfish expectations of his people... He's going to reveal to them his plan, and it's a plan to redeem them, to refine them, and to restore them. So that's a little bit about where we're headed this morning. That's our, our final destination, if you will. But we have to begin where we begin, began pretty much every message in this series, which is with yet another gripe and grumbling from God's people. So if you have your Bibles or Bible apps, I want to encourage you to pull those out now. We're actually going to begin in the very last verse of Malachi chapter 2, Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, which says this. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now, the picture that Malachi paints for us here is one of a, a tired and frustrated parent. And with good reason, right? 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 The Lord says he's wearied, he's exhausted. It's because he's been listening to nonstop complaints and criticisms from his people. If you're a parent here, it's kind of like if you're going on a long road trip with a really fussy toddler. That's, it. That's kind of the situation that God finds himself in. Now, I want to be clear here. God has, he has divine strength. He cannot be fatigued. But what Malachi is trying to do here, he's applying a, a human characteristic to God to reveal a certain truth about what's going on. He's saying, God, God's fed up, right? He has had enough. And it's not because he's frustrated with the questions necessarily, right? 
He's not a parent like you or I maybe who gets annoyed at how many times their kids can ask the question why. Instead, he's getting frustrated at the allegations and the, the accusations that are being made against him. Right? That his people who are blatantly disobeying him, by the way, who are bringing him half-hearted worship and blemished sacrifices, by the way, that they are saying that he is the one who needs to explain himself. That he's not holding up his end of the bargain. Well, God is a righteous God, and that does not sit well with him. And up until this point, God's been pretty patient with his children, hasn't he? He's been pretty patient. He's answered each one of their questions. But here he's basically saying, hey, y'all, I've had enough. Y'all are wearing me out. Or in parent language, hey, I've had it up to here, whatever that means. <laughs> We've all said that, right? See, but like a dog to a bone, right? Just like, just like those toddlers, the Israelites, they keep coming back. They ask the same exact question that they've been asking throughout this entire book. Every single statement God has made, the Israelites respond by asking the question, how? Lord, how have we done this? And what's revealed in the Lord's answer, it's eye-opening. And it's so important for us to notice that what God reveals to us in answering for his children, so to speak, is the truth about what they believed about him. What we're finding here in verse 17 is what the people of God believed to be true about God. They did not believe that he was just. They did not believe that he was fair. And ultimately, they believed that he loved the evil people more than he loved his own people. And here's why this is so important. I want you to hear this. Because at the heart of every sin issue is a misunderstanding of God and his purposes. Let me repeat that. At the heart of every sin issue is a misunderstanding of God and his purposes. See, what happens when we believe something that's true about God is we find ourselves encouraged, right? We find our faith being strengthened. We find ourselves being drawn to God. But when we believe something that's not true about God, when we misunderstand God and his purposes, we find ourselves turning from him. And we encounter discouragement. We encounter doubt. And usually sin isn't far to follow. At the heart of every sin issue is a misunderstanding of God and his purposes. Think all the way back to the garden, right? When Satan tempts Adam and Eve, he does so by calling God's character into question. And as a result, Adam and Eve, they start to misunderstand who God really is. In their doubt, it gives way to disobedience. If you need any further proof of this, consider the fact that right after they sinned, they decide to hide from the same God they used to walk in the garden with. Y'all, nothing had changed except for their view of God. They started to misunderstand God and his purposes, and they fell into sin. That's the same thing we're seeing here with the Israelites. They weren't disobeying and dishonoring God because it was just a fun thing to do. No, they were disobeying and dishonoring him because they lost sight of who he really is. And you can see exactly how that happened. It's, it's black and white. They took their eyes off of him, and they started looking around at other people. They started looking at their circumstances. Started thinking, hey, why are those people being rewarded for doing evil and I'm over here and I'm suffering for doing good? Their circumstances did what they make most of us do. Led them down the road of comparison, which might as well be a high-speed toll road in the other direction of God. The fact is, family, if we're not careful, that same thing can happen 
to us. Sometimes the biggest threat that we face to misunderstanding God is really just our circumstances. Right? We look around and wonder why God hasn't responded the way we thought he would. Or why he's blessing everybody else around us and we're still riding shotgun on the struggle bus. Our misunderstanding of God can lead us to some dangerous places. Which is why we can't allow our changing circumstances to change the way that we see our unchanging God. Family, you can't allow your changing circumstances to change the way that you see your unchanging God. Because your circumstances, they are not a reflection of his character. I think somebody needs to hear that this morning. Your circumstances, what you're facing, it's not a reflection of God's character. But what happens, if you allow your circumstances to take your focus off of God, they can become a reflection of yours. That's the real danger, I think, when it comes to taking our eyes off of God and focusing instead on our circumstances. It takes our, our eyes off of the true prize that awaits us. That's what the Israelites are missing in all of this. They couldn't see that God had a plan that was beyond their circumstances, a plan that was so much bigger than their circumstances. And when we get fixated on our circumstances, the same thing happens. We lose sight of God's bigger plan. Well, thankfully for the Israelites, thankfully for us here today, God's still going to tell us what that plan is. So let me draw your attention back to the book of Malachi. We're going to look at the first four verses in Malachi chapter 3. It says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So God reveals his plan, right? It's to come to his people. But he makes one thing pretty clear in case you missed it. His plan isn't yet to confront the evil and the sin that was happening around them. No, his plan was to come to confront the evil and sin that was happening within them. I think this is important to note because for the people of Israel, and I think oftentimes for us as well, right, our expectation, our hope is that God will come to confront the outsiders when Jesus clearly comes to confront the insiders. So in a sense, for the, the people of Israel, this is really good news, right? They were going to get the justice that they had been crying out for. The only problem was it was going to start with them. And so Malachi proceeds to prophesy about how this perfect plan of God's was going to be ushered in. And I want to break this down for you because if you read through it quickly, you can miss some very important things. Like the fact that this, these verses actually speak to two different messengers. Not just one, but two different messengers. The first is the one who would be sent to prepare his people. Right? God says, behold. Anytime you see that word in scripture, you need to stop because God's basically saying, look, listen up. This is important. He says, I am sending a messenger to prepare the way before me. Now, you've got to be asking yourself the question, okay, why would God need to send a messenger? Couldn't he have just come himself? He seems to be capable of that. Well, I think there's two reasons that are implied here, but two reasons that would have been much more obvious to the people in Malachi's day. 
The first was the messenger needed to come to notify the people. See, because in ancient times, when there would be a, a royal procession, right, when the king was coming to the town, he would send ahead of him a messenger. And it was the role of that messenger to let everybody in the town know that the king is coming. So the messenger would announce the king was coming. He would declare the route that he was going to take through the town. And then, this is important, he would remove the obstacles that stood in the way of the messenger. So the messenger wasn't coming just to notify the people, but to remove the obstacles that were in the way of the king. And see, the reality is what God's speaking to here is that there was still too much standing between God and his people, which is why he chose in his grace to send a messenger before him to clear the path. We get a picture of that same messenger in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. Listen to this. It says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Valleys being made or lifted up, mountains and hills being made low. This is figurative language, family, but it speaks to a spiritual reality. That a messenger was coming to remove those obstacles of unbelief and to call the people of God to repent of their sins so that they would be prepared when the one who came to forgive their sins arrived on the scene. By now, you've probably put it together that this messenger that Malachi is speaking of is John the Baptist who came to prepare the people, but another messenger was coming that would purify the people. And it's actually John himself who announces his arrival. Look at the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29. Jesus is coming towards John, and John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, we've been talking for three, four, five weeks now about the fact that Malachi is pointing us to Jesus. And here we finally see it clearly. He prophesies that after John, the first messenger, comes to prepare the people, that Jesus, the second messenger, will come to purify. And he doesn't just leave it there. He actually gives us two vivid illustrations to communicate exactly what this process is going to look like. And I want to actually dive into each of these because what we see in these processes is God's heart for us. We see God's heart revealed in it. And we see the process by which he plans to purify us. So let's look at that first one. Malachi tells us that Christ is coming to sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Now, I'm not sure how much you know about this process of refining precious metals like this, but it's not exactly an easy task. I can imagine it would have been much, much harder back in those days. You have to take these metals into about, I think it's like 1,700, 1,800 degree temperatures so that it would liquefy so that you'd be able to, to pick out the blemishes in the metal. And it would leave the metal more pure than it began. And as I studied that process this week, I, I watched a couple of videos, I started geeking out on it, and I started to realize that there are some important truths about both this refining process and the process that we go through with Christ. The first is that this process takes an incredible amount of intentionality. I don't know if you noticed this, I didn't really notice this until I was studying this week, that Malachi calls out that Jesus is coming to sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. 
I never noticed that word sit there, but what that tells me is that there's a great deal of intentionality because it takes such intense focus to do this kind of work. See, a refiner has to pay careful attention to the silver to spot each of those impurities. That refiner has to display a great deal of patience to ensure that every single one of those blemishes is, is removed, which means this also takes a great deal of intimacy. In fact, I think one of the most beautiful pictures this illustration gives us is that the main way a refiner and purifier of silver knows that the task is complete is when they can see their own reflection in the metal. In the same way, Christ will know that his role is complete in your life when he sees his image clearly reflected. This process, family, it takes such intentionality, such intimacy, and it's one that Christ demands he take on himself. There's a quote from a, an old evangelist named F.B. Meyer. He was a contemporary of D.L. Moody. And when he was commenting on this passage, he says this, What a comfort it is that Christ surrenders this work to no other hands than his own. He may give his angels charge concerning us when we are in danger, but he keeps our purification beneath his special superintendence. Again, Christ is our comforter. May not always feel comfortable, but he is our comforter. So that's what our purification requires from Christ's perspective. But in these two illustrations, we also see that there's something required of us. Now, isn't there? Because whether we're being placed into the refiner's fire or whether we're being washed with fuller soap, there is an, an implication here that we are going to experience something ourselves. And there's a couple of things I wanted to draw out this morning. That that process requires us to encounter some exposure and to encounter some discomfort. I'm guessing you've already connected those dots in your mind when it comes to the refiner's fire. So let me just talk for a moment about this fuller's soap. Because chances are you may not even know what that exactly means. But there's some powerful truths here. See, a fuller uh, is essentially like a launderer of clothes. Think about this like an ancient dry cleaner's. Right? Their, their, their skill, especially in those days, was to be able to, to whiten clothes. And they had this, this soap concoction that they would take, and they'd take your, your tunic or your clothing, and they'd put it in there. The only issue is it wouldn't clean clothes like some of our detergents do nowadays. It required a tremendous amount of work. So they would soak the clothes in this soap concoction, but then they'd have to put some elbow grease into it. They'd have to, to rub those things together. They would stomp on it. They would beat on it. They would do whatever it took to get those stains out. And so if you think about your life in the purification process that way, what well, should tell you that we should expect a little bit of exposure and a little bit of discomfort, shouldn't it? See, because the only way a stain can be removed is if it's first exposed. Same thing stands for your sin. The only way those sins can be washed clean is that they're first exposed. 1 John 1, 9 tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So family, if sin isn't exposed, we will remain isolated, not just from one another, but from the true gift of God's grace. But yet what happens with our sin? Especially for those of us who are in Christ, sometimes we, we want to hide it. Not just because we're embarrassed or ashamed of it, but be, because we know when it's exposed that we're going to experience some discomfort. And we know that this process of purification isn't pain-free. But it's important to remember that the, the purpose of this purification process, just like fuller soap, it's to cleanse us and not to destroy us. 
The enemy wants us to believe it's the other way around. But Christ purifies us to cleanse us, not to destroy us. So that friction you feel, that friction is actually meant to free you and to cleanse you from your unrighteousness. So whether you're heading into a trial, coming out of one, or in the midst of one, I want you just to, to keep these two images in your mind. This refiner's fire, this fuller's soap. And remember that Christ is with you. He is close to you. Right? Even though you may be feeling some heat or some friction, family, that's a sign that he is purifying you and that he is preparing you for his return. That's what Malachi is actually going to point us to here in this final verse that we'll look at this morning. It's Christ's second coming. Look with me at verse 5. It says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now I want to point out something real quickly here. The people in Malachi's day, they would have read verses 1 through 5 as all happening at one moment when the Messiah arrives on the scene. But what they couldn't see is that there was actually some distance that stood between the beginning of the fulfillment of this prophecy and its completion, right? That Jesus was coming once to die as Savior, and then he was coming again to rule as a judge. It's kind of like if you've ever looked out over a range of mountain peaks from a distance, right? If you look at it from a distance, they all look like it's one mountain. But when you get closer, you actually realize there's some distance between them. Y'all follow me so far? Got the picture? Perfect. This is the reality of God's plan for us, right? His people couldn't see it then, but we see it now. The reason why we see it now is because we exist somewhere between those two peaks, between Christ's first coming and his second, which is great news for us, right? We get to live in the reality of, of the victory on the cross and Christ's victory over the grave, but we also get to look forward. We get to look forward to Christ's next coming, we get to stand with confidence knowing that he's coming back. This final justice he speaks of in verse 5 is on its way. Now here's why I say all of this. I want you to listen up because the purpose of the purification that we are experiencing now is to prepare us to be the kind of disciples who can endure Christ's judgment when he returns. Are you following me this morning? The purpose of the purification that we are experiencing now, the purpose of some of that pain, the discomfort, the exposure we are experiencing is to prepare us to be the kind of disciples that can endure Christ's judgment when he returns. So if you look back to verse 2, when God asks who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears, the answer should be we can. We can endure that judgment because we have received Christ's purification. Right, that we can stand confidently before the throne of Christ because we have been both purified and prepared. Family, that leads me to one simple question as I invite the band back up this morning. Will you be ready? Will you be ready? I know we read this a lot. I don't know how much it registers with us, but Jesus is coming soon, family. In fact, if you look to the very last chapter in your Bibles, Revelation chapter 22, you will notice Jesus says one phrase three different times. He says, behold, I am coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. Now, depending on who you are, that message, it'll either terrify you or it'll give you a tremendous amount of hope. But regardless of who you are, it should instill within you a great sense 
of urgency. It should instill within you this deep desire to be purified so that you are prepared for that day when you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Will you be ready? Family, all of scripture points us to that one day. From Genesis to Malachi to Revelation. When are we going to listen? 1 Peter 4, 7 tells us the end of all things is near. Peter says, you got to be alert. Nobody knew better than Peter what happens when you fall asleep. Yet here we are. So many of us who claim to follow Christ, we're just comfortable sleepwalking through life. Even when we read passages like we see in Revelation 22, we just kind of ignore them. Become like those amber alerts we receive on our phone. You remember when those first started? Man, they would get your attention. Sometimes they startle you. They wake you up in the middle of the night. Now, you just ignore it. Not even a thought. You can ignore those amber alerts all you want, but you will not be able to ignore Christ when you stand before his throne. Will you be ready? Will you be ready? I want you to actually take that question to heart. See, because what happens is, we oftentimes will happily skip over ourselves and we'll start looking to our spouse. We'll start thinking about our neighbor, our friend, our coworker. But all the unsaved sinners out there who need to come clean. But what God is saying here to his people in Malachi, and what I believe he's saying here to us, is that it begins right here. It begins by us taking a look at ourselves. We can trust that a day is coming when he will confront the sinners outside of here. But I believe God has gathered us here together today to confront the sins that are still living within each of us. Family, what God wants more than anything is to see his people purified. And while that role belongs to Christ, you and I have a role to play in that, don't we? To open ourselves up to some exposure and to some discomfort. Family, that begins by repenting, by turning from our sins, by turning from all those things that we have chased instead of God to instead pursue him. So I want to call you this morning to get uncomfortable. To get uncomfortable and to, to repent of your sins, to acknowledge that Christ is truly the Lord of your life and to allow him the access he needs to refine and to purify you. So in just a moment, our worship team is going to, they're going to lead us back in a song that's going to talk about this idea of washing us clean. I would love nothing more than for you to sing those words, but if you can't sing those with your heart in them, don't sing them at all. Because Christ will be faithful to examine your heart. He will be faithful to draw close to you with that intentionality, with that intimacy, and to do the work that's necessary so that his life is reflected in yours. Are you willing, family? Will you be ready? If you are, I want to invite you. Would you just bow your heads, close your eyes? Would you pray this prayer along with me? Say, Jesus, I humble myself before you. Lord, I give you my life. I give you everything that's within it. Lord, would you come? Would you purify me? 
Jesus, would you cleanse me? Would you forgive me of my sins? Would you clothe me in your perfect righteousness? Say, Lord, I am ready to be purified and prepared. We love you, Jesus. Amen.